Christianity does not forbid your getting ahead. You're trying to make your life a little bit nicer for you and your family. He is simply reminding us that real contentment is not found in what you have, but in what you become. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study of the book of 1 Timothy, and in chapter 6, the Apostle Paul addresses the issue of having a right perspective toward money. Money is a tool, and when used properly, it can further God's kingdom and can grow us in our walk with the Lord. But misused, it can become an all-consuming God in its own right. So as Pastor Carl nears the end of this epistle, he wants to drive home the point of where real contentment is to be found. Now, those who are content, he says in this passage of Scripture, are those who have a right view of wealth. And that's what I want us to get this morning. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And some of us are not free this morning. Some of us have a lot but we're unhappy on the inside. We've met Christ as Savior and Lord, but we're dissatisfied because we have the world's view and we've never renewed our mind with God's truth. So I want you to see the contrast here between contentment and covetousness. First, in verses 6 through 8, we look at Paul's instruction to the contented poor. Now, the issue at hand that Paul addresses are these false teachers who have snuck into the church. And they believe that godliness is a means of material gain. And so he describes them as depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They believe that if you could get gain, namely material gain, that that is really to your advantage. They're basically taking religion and exploiting it. They're in the ministry for the money. They're in it for the buck. And like so many teachers today, they even used it to persuade the multitudes to use religion for money. They were basically exploiting the gospel. Now, how they did it here, we're not told specifically. Maybe some of them charged exorbitant fees to be able to come and to speak or to teach. Maybe some of them were convincing congregations. If you give a certain percentage of your money, usually to me, then God is going to bless you. He's going to make you healthy, wealthy, and rich. And of course, the Bible never promises that. That's heresy. Now, God may choose to give you beyond your necessities and allow you to enjoy some luxuries in this life. But God doesn't promise that. God promises that as you give to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He will meet your needs. That's what He promises. But He also promises that you'll have the opportunity to lay up treasure in heaven. So we're not given the specifics of how these false teachers were specifically teaching that religion is a means to gain. But Paul is reacting to that. And in essence, he says, you know what? Religion is a means to gain. But let me define gain. Verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. There is a great gain in godliness, but the gain is spiritual. It's not material. And so both verses 5 and 6 declare that godliness is a means of gain. In verse 5, the false teachers suppose that godliness is a means of material gain. And Paul, in essence, says in verse 6, no, it's an issue of spiritual gain. You're right. Religion is a means to gain. There is great gain in godliness. 
But godliness is what is the gain, not material wealth. Look at the New English Bible, how it translates verse 5. They say these false teachers think religion should yield high dividends. And of course, religion does yield high dividends. Their argument is absolutely right. But the dividends are spiritual, not material. Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. The gain is enormous, providing you're content. And by content, in this context, he's speaking about being satisfied with having the necessities of life. How do you know? Because he tells me in verse 7, he begins with that little three-letter word, for, because, because we brought nothing into the world. So we cannot take anything out of it either. Now, it's not quite so obvious in our English text, but the word nothing appears twice in the Greek New Testament. And in both clauses, it's the very first word in the clause for emphasis. The Phillips translation paraphrases it, but it catches the beauty of the Greek text. He writes, absolutely nothing did we bring into this world. Absolutely nothing shall we take out of this world. Now, Paul is not obviously praising poverty and declaring prosperity a sin. Christianity does not forbid you're getting ahead. You're trying to make your life a little bit nicer for you and your family. He is simply reminding us that real contentment is not found in what you have, but in what you become. That real contentment is found in being a godly person. That real contentment is based on internal blessing, not external acquisitions. Now, if you don't learn that this morning, and if it doesn't become a reality in your heart, you'll never be happy in this life. You will churn the decades as an unhappy person. Now think your way through this as it relates to your birth and to your death, and you'll know that this is true. When we're born, we brought nothing into this world, and when we die, of course, we'll leave the same way. Now they may dress you up in a fine suit and put you in a beautiful walnut casket and cover you in jewelry or whatever they do, but the real you inside will have been left. It will have been gone. It will either be in heaven or it will be in hell. Absent from the body is present to the Lord. The opposite is true, of course, for the unbeliever. And when that shell on the ground comes out, it's not coming out in a Hickey Freeman suit. It's not coming out with your diamonds on. It's coming out the same way it came into this world. Job reminds us, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. Both Paul and Job affirm that the gaining of material possessions in this life, no matter how great or insignificant they are, are only temporary. We need to see life in that perspective if we're ever to be content. And so verse 8 properly follows. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. If you have food to eat and covering, and the word really covers more than simply clothing, the word covers, you know, shelter or whatever is necessary. If you have food in your stomach and clothes on your back, you have no right to be discontent. If you have food in your stomach and clothes on your back, you have every reason in the world to be content. But if you find contentment in material things, you'll never be satisfied. It's like the man drinking salt water who's so thirsty and all he can do is drink more and he's never happy. And so Paul's argument for contentment against covetousness is to understand the facts of life, or really better, the facts of life, the facts of birth, and the facts of death. Namely, we're born into this world naked and penniless, 
And when you leave, we will leave in the same way. And life on earth is lived between two points, when we come naked and we leave naked. And in the in-between, we may acquire some things, we may earn some things, we may give in some things, we may pinch it from others, but the fact of the matter is that the material possessions of this life are the luggage of time, they are not the luggage of eternity. You will not take it with you. And so what he wants us to see is that from our naked birth to our naked death, if we have food and covering, with that we ought to be satisfied. Having these, Paul said, we ought to be content. But if we're always lusting, coveting for something else out there, we'll never be happy. Now he's reminding us that contentment is not found in what you have. It's found in what you become. It is found in being godly. And when we are godly, we will be content simply in having our necessities met. Listen, friends, real contentment will make a poor man rich. And discontentment will make a rich man poor. You can have much and be miserable. The fact of the matter is when little is not enough, nothing is enough. You will never have enough. And the secret of contentment is not wanting more. It's wanting what God has given you. It's being happy with what he has put in your hand. And so the argument of these verses is not to become a, a pauper per se. But it's to be happy with, with the necessities that God has put in our hand. God knows that if we are to be content, we must have this perspective. Now, that's how he deals with the poor. Two groups. First, those that are contented. They're content with what they have. But now he moves to a second group of poor people in verses 9 and 10. What I'm calling here this morning the covetous poor. Paul's instruction to the covetous poor. Now, let's be clear again. He's not referring to the rich here. He's not going to address the rich until he comes to verse 17. He's addressing those poor people who are determined to become rich. These people are not content with the necessities of life. They are in love with money. Philip says they have set their hearts on being wealthy. So what does Paul say about these unhappy poor people? Look at it. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Those who are determined to get rich will fall. And their fall is not simply material. Look, they may live and actually become rich. Their fall is spiritually defined here. There's a six-fold fall that the person who loves money gets caught up in. First, they fall into temptation. That's the very first one. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. They do for themselves what they may be praying as the Lord commanded in the model prayer that God will never do to them. They lead themselves into temptation. They expose themselves to temptations otherwise of which they would have been exempt. Secondly, notice, he said they fall into a snare. The Greek word here is a trap. They, they become entangled. They become in a cage where material things has them. And it tightens its grip on you. It gets stronger and stronger and stronger. This week I read that the average American family is $9,000 in credit card debt. That's awful. That's terrible. And so a family who makes $40,000 a year to be happy, maybe this year they're going to spend $49,000. They're going to live beyond their means. Why? Because they're in a trap. They're in a snare. And so they are embracing a philosophy that is contrary to God's word. Third, notice they fall into many foolish and harmful desires. 
Because they have a driving objective to be rich, it leads them to certain harmful desires or loss. Now, money can become a drug and covetousness a drug addiction because the covetous man wants more. And the more you have, the more you want. Those who want to get rich, he is saying, are never contented with what they have. They want more. They develop a craving and they get into all kinds of foolish and harmful desires. But not only is it harmful, it's hurtful. Look at the next temptation. They fall into temptation. First, they fall into a snare. Third, foolish and harmful desires. Fourth, he says, into ruin and destruction. Now, the irony here is interesting because these are people who are set on gain. They want more. They think they're going to have a greater blessing. But the truth of the matter is, is that what they are doing only brings loss. Maybe a loss of respect. Maybe a loss of integrity. And death, of course, a loss of everything. For the unbeliever, an eternity in hell. But for the Christian who is in love with money, a loss of great eternal reward. And they're really sick in their perspective. You know, they're good Christian people. I mean, they're saved. They... They know the Lord and they seem to love him as much as they know how, but they've not allowed their minds to be renewed. They've bought into the spirit of the world instead of the spirit of God. And because they love money, they are making the worst investments in this life. And they are plowing a road for 60 or 70 years and they're going to wake up in heaven someday and they're going to realize that for 100 million zillion years they could have had so much more had they had a different kind of mindset. And so he speaks of these who fall into ruin and to destruction. Covetousness is destructive, but he's not finished. There's a fifth problem, and it leads them into error. Look at verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. Now you know this is probably one of the most misquoted verses in all the Bible. How many times have you heard people say money is the root of all evil? And of course the Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Money in and of itself is amoral. It's not moral or immoral. It's amoral. It's neutral. It's paper, it's metal. It's evil, however, when it's in the hands of a covetous person. And Paul reminds us that some, because they long and love it, they have wandered away from the faith. He's warning Timothy of the fall that so often accompanies the unbridled lust of things. People have lied for it. They steal for it. They cheat for it. Some have killed to get it. They've destroyed their families because of it. Some have even sold their souls to the devil just to acquire more. I read not that long ago, Bill Gates, who said that going to church on Sunday was the biggest waste of time and that he could use that time more productively at work. That's what the richest man in the world said. Now, this verse does not say money is the root of all evil. For that matter, neither does it say the love of money is the root of all evil. Now, the word the, though it's contained in a couple of translations, is not in the original. Sometimes the translators will insert certain words to smooth out the reading, to make it a little more easy to read. But understand, it's not here in the original. It says money is a root of all evil. All evils are not the fruit of the love of money. 
Now, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the root of dishonesty and fraud and cheating and theft and marriages of convenience and, and apostasy and cruelty and murder and war and all kinds of evil. It's certainly a major taproot of evil. But both the Bible and experience teach us that it's not the only source of evil, though indeed a major source. But I, what I want you to see as he describes this fifth way in which men fall is that a love of money causes men to fall into error. Because of this craving, he tells us, some have wandered away from the faith. Now, who is he speaking to in the context? Christians. A true Christian cannot out and out deny the faith and reject Jesus Christ as Lord. That's impossible. Anyone who's ever done that, who said they were a Christian before, just were not. The Bible affirms the perseverance of the saints, that if you have it, you can't lose it. If you lost it, you never had it to begin with. He's not speaking of those who have denied the faith. Notice, he's speaking of those who have wandered from the faith. Many a Christian have become trapped in false teaching, and that false teaching has swayed them in such a way that they have moved away from the mooring that we call the faith. Six. He said they have fallen into many sorrows. Look at it. They have pierced themselves with many a pang. As a result of their pursuit of money, having wandered away from the body of truth we call Scripture, they have pierced themselves with a many a pang. It might be the pang of, more, of worry, the pang of remorse, the pang of a disregarded conscience, the pang of rebellious, undisciplined children, the pang of an unhappy and disordered life, all kinds of things. Why? Because they have wandered away from the body of truth we call Scripture into the philosophy of the world. Just this week, dealing with a dear family who've come in contact with our church, and I mean, they're dealing with rebellious children, teenagers, bad mom, you know, confess Christ. Love the Lord, but just made a lot of mistakes. Children were born. He kept his wife at work, put the kids in daycare. The world raised them instead of that mom and that dad. Now they've got the product. They've got the fruit of their hand. Why? Because they wanted more. They wanted more money. And they've pierced themselves with many a pang. Over the years, I've seen good Christian men wander from the faith. Some who used to be here, serving faithfully the people of God. But somebody came along and promised them financial security, financial independence. Just get in our program, and you will become financially secure and independent. God doesn't want you to be financially independent. He wants you to be financially dependent on Him. The writer of the Proverbs says, Lord, don't give me so much that I forget you and blaspheme you, but neither give me so little that I would steal. Give me just what I need. That's the perspective. Not a desire to get rich. And so some who used to be here have wandered away. Their priorities are all wrong. I meet people all the time. Visitors I call. Oh, have you come just once? Well, yeah. Um, you haven't been back in a month, I've noticed. Well, no, I, I work most Sundays. Now, look, if they're unregenerate, unsaved, I understand that. 
The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. It's foolishness to him. But I want to tell you, if you're born again and you're blowing off the Lord's day, and I'm not a legalist. I'm not talking about the ox that's stuck in the ditch. I'm not talking about the policeman or the army officer or the surgeon who needs to care for us. I'm talking about the person who basically profanes this holy day and it means nothing. Why? Because they want more. Now, obviously, a true Christian cannot deny the faith. But if his heart is captured by things, he can wander away from the faith. A love of money keeps lost people out of the kingdom of God, and it keeps saved people from being productive in the kingdom of God. Now, this is a very stern warning that Paul has given, and we need to hear it in America today. This is very important because being discontent will take away your joy. It will rob you of the praise that you ought to have in your heart. It will take away the plan that God has for your life. It will render you unfruitful for the kingdom of God. God loves you. He has a plan for your life, but the devil knows that that plan can be thwarted with a love of money. Now, let me say this. There are some here today who are already in process. They are making a slow drift. See, it doesn't happen just like that like turning a light switch on. The devil works slowly, subtly, carefully, and it becomes a slow drift. And it's not until you wake up one day and you realize what a mess your family is, your marriage is, or how you've spent your whole life just on acquiring things and nothing of eternal significance. See, spirituality in Scripture is linked to things. Because God knows that your purse strings pull at your heart strings. It's not by accident that half of our Lord's parables dealt with material things. We need to find contentment, but we need to find it God's way. And God wants us to be content in a society that is doing nothing but teaching discontent. He's reminding us that being discontent is a temptation of which many have fallen into this awful six-fold fall. Now, this is relevant for those of us who live in 21st century America because the message of America is always get more. That's the American dream. You like your house? It's not good enough. Get it bigger. You like your car? Get a newer one. You don't have a boat? You ought to have one. And on and on and on and on and on and on it goes. It's the message of our culture. But it wasn't born in America it was born centuries before, millennial before, in a place called the Garden of Eden. Because discontent was the message of the serpent to that first couple. He said, oh, God's ripping you off. Now, God gave them thousands of trees from which they could eat and be content. But the devil focused on one tree. In essence, he says, God's depriving you. He knows that if you eat of that tree, it will make you wise. He knows that if you eat from this tree, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God. You'll be liberated. You'll be free. And the devil was trying to get them to see that there was discontentment in the plan of God. Now, being discontent, it's nothing new. It goes back to the creation of the world. Now, when is enough enough? I mean, when is enough enough? Now, nobody can answer that for you, but you alone. And God needs people in every sphere, in every segment of society to reach people for Jesus Christ. 
But I want to tell you, I don't want to get to heaven where God said, you know, you should have capped your lifestyle at this point and then taken all the additional funds and invested it in the kingdom of God. Now, God may entrust more to me, but I want to make sure I'm using it his way and not the world's way. So how do you keep your heart in check? Well, the second section that's sandwiched between Paul's address to the poor and the prosperous, it, prosperous is, is critical, and it's Paul's instruction to the pastor. Now, he's not just speaking to Timothy. He's speaking to every pastor, but not just pastors, but to all of us, because a pastor is to be an example to the flock. You're to follow a pastor as he follows Christ. And so in verses 11 to 16, Paul gives Timothy a charge that he might have a proper balance between material things and contentment. Verse 13 begins, I charge you. And then it comes in verse 14. Namely, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach. Now, what commandment does he have in mind? Well, contextually, there's no one specific commandment that he's asking Timothy to keep. Much like the term, the faith, the deposit, the commandment, as he uses in both epistles, he's referring to that body of truth that he has delivered to them. And so the New English Bible translates it, I charge you to obey your orders. That is all the orders that I have given you as an apostle and representative of Jesus Christ. The Jerusalem Bible says, I put, you, I put to you the duty of doing all that you've been told with no faults or failures. And so in terms of verse 11 onwards, the charge though is expressed as to how it should be kept. Notice, but flee from these things you man of God. Now, the first two words in the Greek text are two two-letter words, two monosyllables in the Greek Testament. The very first two words in the Greek text are but you, suder. But you, and then he uses this vocative, this appeal, O man of God, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Now, I love those two monosyllables. I have them written up on the lamp in front of me in my study, but you, because it's a charge to every pastor and really to every Christian, but you, Timothy, never mind what the false teachers in Ephesus are teaching. You are to be different. Never mind everybody else and what everybody else is doing. You are to be different. You are to take the commandment. You are to take the faith. You are to take the deposit and you are to be faithful with it no matter what anybody else thinks, but you, Timothy, are to be different. You have a distinctive calling as a man of God. What a title that he gives to Timothy. Man of God in the Old Testament, it's reserved only to describe Moses, David, Elijah, and certain Old Testament prophets. But God uses it in the New Testament to describe a pastor who is faithful to the Word of God, who's content with what he has rather than like these covetous false teachers in his day. Now let's examine the charge to Timothy. It comes on three levels. First, there's Paul's ethical appeal to Timothy. Notice, but flee from these things, that is the evils of which the love of money is the root of, shun it all, and instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These are the qualities you are to pursue as a man of God. To listen again to today's message, Contentment and How Not to Miss It, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 
787-7478 and requesting program 1TM13. That phone number again is 877-787-7478. This is the final message in our study of 1 Timothy, and now is the time you may want to consider acquiring the entire 13-volume study of this pastoral epistle. You can get more information at our website, searchthescriptures.org. And there you can also listen online to any of the messages in this series. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our study in 1 Timothy as we search the scriptures.